Several weeks ago, I shared with you that I had quite a shocking thing happen. I was getting ready for church, and I went to put my tie on. I forgot how to tie my tie. And that was quite something. I had not had that ever happen to me. I have been tying my tie since about, oh, 45 years. My mom taught me when I was probably about 13. Um, and I couldn't remember how to tie my tie. Well, a couple of weeks ago, so that, so that was several months ago. So, uh, so I didn't try to tie a tie again until a long time after that, like a couple of months. So there was a Sunday I wanted to tie my, I wanted to wear a tie, and uh, it was a few weeks ago, and so I thought, well, let's try again. Let's not give up. And uh, and it happened. I said, okay, good. I'm over that. That was a one-time Parkinson's moment back then, right? This morning, I can't remember how to tie my tie again. And uh, so this, uh, so if you're if you're in that place where you you're feeling frail, you're feeling weak. You're feeling like you don't know what's going to happen the next day. Um, you're not alone. We are all in our physical bodies frail, or if we don't feel that way, we will tomorrow or the next day or next week or next year or next decade. But we are incredibly frail and we need the Lord's strength and yes, indeed, his power to live out anything like the Christian life. And I was just reminded of that yet again this morning. That, uh, <laughs> but it wasn't a one-time Parkinson's moment. It was, uh, it's with you. This morning, we both conclude and continue our series of worship themes and ser- sermons at Easter time for a church in transition. When we began about eight weeks ago or so, we noted that the church ought always to be in transition, where transition represents ongoing and Christward change, that we are becoming more like Jesus, both as individuals and as a congregation. Of course, this growth into Christ-likeness is almost never linear or anything of the sort. And what I mean by linear is that it goes from one step to the next. Step one, step two, step three, step 100. 100. Uh, it, it, it doesn't work that way in an orderly and even fashion. But Christian growth and maturity is often not at all an orderly or even event. To the, to the contrary, in our relation to Christ's likeness, Whatever is happening can often hardly be called growth or progress at all. Even for the most spiritually connected and ardent followers of Jesus, Christ-likeness is a lifelong one step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, one step back process that is ongoing. We all, and I'm sorry to say there are no exceptions to this, so those of you who are young in the faith, please don't get discouraged because God provides for us all that we need from his riches and glory, but but there really are no exceptions to this. We all experience stagnation in our growth or progress in our Christian maturity, and especially what we might aspire to call Christ-likeness. 
to the point we sometimes might fear that we're on the regress rather than the progress. Indeed, perceptible and practically useful progress in Christian maturity, and yes, Christ-likeness, can exclude us, or rather elude us, for days, for weeks, for months, for years, and yes, perhaps even for a decade or two. But very strongly, the Bible makes the implicit case that we should neither expect such linear progress into Christ-likeness, nor be disappointed by the intractably nonlinear tendencies of Christ Christian growth, spiritual maturity, and characterological Christ-likeness. By the way, if and when we find ourselves in a fallow season, when nothing seems to be happening, one of the best and most reliable ways of breaking out of it is to begin to serve the Lord Jesus, begin to serve his people, begin to serve the world around us in new and different ways, being refreshed by the change. That's not necessarily what today or this message is about, but it's what they call low-hanging fruit to a preacher preaching about the power of Jesus' resurrection. We really can do nothing of eternal consequence but through him. Dr. Russell Moore is the former president of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, who simply could not stay in the SBC like Shelley and me several years ago. He now serves as public theologian for Christianity Today magazine, and he recently wrote an article entitled, The Cross Contradicts Our Culture Wars. The Cross Contradicts Our Culture Wars. He writes, Jesus spoke of a downward trajectory as the way in which he would be lifted up and would draw all people to himself. John 12, verse 32. This stands in contrast not only to those who sought to magnify their own name, such as Caesar, who wanted no rivals to his reign, but also to those who sought their own self-protection, like the disciples who fled in fear. Only the crucified Christ, the sin-bearing Lamb of God, vindicated by the resurrecting power of his Father, could pour out the spirit in a way that could reverse the confusion and disunity that began at Babel in the book of Genesis, and he began his reorganizing in his coming at Pentecost. But the resurrection and ascension were not an undoing of the crucifixion. They were instead a continuation of what Jesus pronounced to be a triumph through defeat, a power through weakness. As New Testament scholar Richard Hayes once noted, after his resurrection, Jesus did not appear to Pilate or to Caesar or to Herod. To do so would have been to vindicate himself, to win an argument rather than to save the world. Instead, as Luke puts it, Jesus presented himself alive, Acts 1-3, to those he had chosen as witnesses. That's because Jesus' kingdom would advance not through resentment and grievance, but through those who would bear witness to him with sincerity and truth, even to the loss of their own lives. Conquering like that 
through the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, Revelation 12, 11, is what winning looks like, especially when one sees who the enemy actually is. We've already heard three of the four New Testament gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the previous readings of the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead following his brutal but purposeful execution on the cross. Now, I say purposeful as it relates to his crucifixion because the offering of Jesus Christ to die in our place, indeed for all who would believe, was deliberate. It was the grand fulfillment of an eternal plan and a mission set in motion in eternity past since before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ was personally sent in the will of God the Father and Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son, freely and fully gave himself for the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of God's good and sovereign order in all creation, both on the earth and in the heavenlies. So this morning, I'd like for us to take one more final look. We began last week, or, or on Friday, actually, at the death of death in the death of Christ. This time, let's look from the other side, from the point of view of Jesus' resurrection. Now, nobody was ever saved by a dead Savior. Yes, the Bible makes clear that we are forgiven of our sins through the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ. But then what? Death anyway? Well, no. Jesus' resurrection is mandatory, both intellectually and spiritually, for a living, breathing, workable, and coherent Christian faith and the reason for our hope. As I shared with you a little bit earlier in our service, the central truth of our message is printed for you there on the inside upper left corner of your bulletin, and it's taken directly from our sermon text, which is John 20, that is the Gospel of John chapter 20, the very last verse of John 20, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The key truth that I and each of the gospel writers would make at this point is Jesus Christ did not die so that we could all likewise die as we all will, but in relative peace. No, Jesus Christ was raised that we might live for God now and live with God on into eternity. The gospel of John, indeed this Easter Sunday sermon as well, were given quoting here now, that we, I inserted we rather than they, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. So let's look at John 20 with this purpose firmly in our view. Turn to your Bibles, if you haven't already, to John chapter 20. So our current series has been, as I noted, 
In Christ Jesus, God has overcome sin and death once for all and forever. And this is our culmination of it, but it's not the culmination of our giving our attention, time, and energy to it because this is the heart of the Christian gospel. In Christ Jesus, God has overcome sin and death once for all forever. All four of the New Testament gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John both assume and assert that God raised Jesus from the dead on that first Easter Sunday, likely April 5th, 33 AD. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 declares that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we Christians are fools to be pitied for actively believing a misapprehension. The Christian gospel, the gospel of John, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the historical, bodily, factual, and personal resurrection of Jesus Christ are all about the reality that since the cross in Christ, God has overcome sin and death once for all and forever. In true fact, after the New Testament Gospels, the text of Scripture from Acts to Revelation give more attention to the resurrection of Jesus Christ than to his death on the cross. Check it out. That doesn't mean Jesus' death is less important. It's the central event in the history of the world. It does mean, however, that his being raised from the dead is an essential fact, too, and the Christian faith is truly foolishness if Jesus was not raised. And if we cannot live in the power of the resurrection just as the Bible insists that we must, not that we can, but that we must, Yuroslav Pelikan, that's a funny name, Yuroslav Pelikan, was a very well-known and well-respected church historian at Yale University for more than 40 years, a true Christian who survived in academia for over 40 years until his death in 2006. One of the statements of his that is best known was on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's very, very basic, simple, but profound. He said... If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not, nothing else matters. Think on that for a bit. It'll come to you. So we come to our text in chapter 20 of John's Gospel, and the most important thing for us to take from it is this. It's, if you're keeping score, it's, it's point number one out of four here it is, John's account of Jesus' resurrection is true history. John's account of Jesus' resurrection is true history. I was listening to a podcast last week. They were talking about whether it matters that Jesus was raised from the dead, which then led to a conversation about does it matter if the Bible is true, what it, what it teaches, what it says, what its history seems to indicate, although there's nothing that's ever been brought up that does anything to undermine the truth of the historical accounts of the Bible, including the accounts of Jesus' resurrection. And I was glad to hear they concluded, yes, it does matter, <laughs> whether it's true. It matters that these aren't cleverly 
pieced together stories. And so we, we, we start with this truth. God's, John's account of Jesus' resurrection is true history. And one of the ways we can be assured it's true history is the centrality of the women in the discovery of Jesus' Jesus's resurrection and the, and the initial declaration that Jesus lives. Did you notice, as you read all, four, all three of the previous accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the women were central in the discovery of the empty tomb and the beginning of the proclamation of the risen Christ? It's true here for John's gospel as well. It's included in all four of the gospels to varying levels. This would never happen in that day if it was not true. Let's look at the text from verse 1 of John chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and this is John speaking of himself in the third person, which was uh, the way that writers wrote at that, at that time. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he, John, saw the linen cloths lay, laying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the others, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. This is John again. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. That's kind of an anticlimactic climactic ending to that section. And the disciples went home. Well, another way that we can be absolutely assured that this account of John, the other accounts as well, but we're dealing now with John's, is that the women remain central to the story and its proclamation, even beyond the initial discovery of Jesus' empty tomb. Let's look at the text again from verse 11. But, and that but is there in contrast to what the disciples, the two disciples, Peter and John, did. The disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, I'll pause here for just a second, just to note. I believe in angels. I believe in angels because the Bible teaches about angels. I believe in the devil. I believe in the devil because the Bible teaches about the devil. In fact, the Bible warns us about the devil. And Jesus himself believed and taught about the devil.
Miracles also, but that's another matter altogether. Verse 13, they, the angels, said to them, they have taken, I'm sorry, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher or my teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had, had, had said these things to her. So John's account of Jesus' resurrection is true history. And we can know this for sure because no writer worth his weight would have put the women central in the story if it wasn't true. Not in that day. There's a second thing that we can take from this gospel that I think will be very helpful for us this morning. And here it is. Jesus makes a surprising personal appearance to his disciples. We're about to read about it. We haven't gotten there yet. But they were huddled together in fear of the Jews, it says, and he gives them the Holy Spirit. Note this, he gives them the Holy Spirit before Pentecost. And I believe this is so that they could start right then at that moment to lead, to teach, to give testimony to the risen Savior and Lord in truth and in boldness and in power. Note this in verse 19 and following, on the evening of that day. So we're still talking about the first day of the week. There it is, that's what it says. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now I could wax eloquently or maybe not so eloquently but happily on how this happened that Jesus appeared, materialized in a sense, in their very midst though the doors were locked. We've been talking about the reality all around us that the Bible calls, especially in the book of Ephesians, five times, exactly the same phrase, in the heavenlies. But the heavenlies are all around us. We in the material can't pick it up, the heavenlies. We can't pick it up unless the Spirit gives us a special gift of discernment or, or a momentary glimpse into the, the heavenlies. But they're all around us. This is what the Bible teaches. And if we, if we think about the heavenlies not being out there somewhere far, far away and we have to find that place wherever it is, but that the heavenlies are all, all around us, much of the Bible starts to make sense to us, including here, that Jesus didn't have to come from there to here. He just stepped into reality from out of the heavenlies. It makes perfect sense. And there he was among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Well, they're going to need some help, and help is on the way. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. For most of my Christian life, I had no idea what that meant. I've been in Bible studies where the Bible study teacher had no idea what that meant. I've been in church services when the preacher had no idea what that meant, including me, when I was preaching. But this is what it meant. Jesus gave the disciples the Holy Spirit ahead of time, in a sense, so they could begin working in the power of the Holy Spirit, anticipating Pentecost when his spirit would be shared with all of God's people, indwelling every single born-again, blood-bought disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we might live by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is the power of the resurrection. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us if we belong to him. And notice what he says first after that, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This matter of forgiveness is huge in the Christian life. And I'm, I'm more and more convinced as I get older and as the Lord continues to work in me on this issue of forgiveness, that it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can truly do it. And it's an expression every time of God's grace to another. And to ourselves, truly. So here Jesus makes a surprising personal appearance to his disciples as they are huddled together in fear of the Jews. And he gives them the Holy Spirit before Pentecost. And he does so to lead, teach, and give testimony to the risen Savior and Lord in truth, boldness, and power. There's a third thing. It's, we're almost done here. It's a third thing, and it's this. Jesus makes a second, perhaps even more surprising, personal appearance to his doubting and pouting disciple Thomas as an expression of his loving grace and mercy. Look at it in verses 24 and following. Now, Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, or as some of your translations keep, Didymus, which is the word for twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands... The mark of the nails. See, some people have called Thomas a skeptic. I don't think he was a skeptic. I think he was pouting. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. See, I, I think he was pouting. I think he was... Hurt. I think he was 
confused. I think he was wondering what all this was about, these two to three years that we've just spent following this guy from one place to another. It's been fun. He's been doing some miracles. That's a pretty cool thing to see. And he teaches like no one we ever experienced before. But now he's gone. What was the point of that? Verse 26, eight days later. So notice, Jesus doesn't run to him and say, see, 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 here. Eight days later, he left him stew in his doubt and his pout for eight days. And don't you imagine the disciples would be talking about this Jesus that they've just seen for eight days. Thomas, we were right there in his presence. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, here we go again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. But he, he, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have, have you believed because you have seen me? Here we are in the resurrection story. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Which leads us to our central truth and our last point. Both this account of Jesus' resurrection and the whole of, God's, of John's gospel are given, quoting here now, so that we might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing we may have life in Jesus' name. And oh, by the way, there is life in no one else. There is life in no other. Acts 4 and 12 says there is no name under heaven by which we must be saved other than Jesus. So we read in verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, so they were eyewitnesses to these many other signs which are not written in this book. Now, I want to I pause there for just a second because John um, uh, builds on this at the end of the gospel in the next chapter. So I want you to turn over. It might be a turnover. It might be just look on the other page to John 21 and verse 24. John is attesting to his, to his identity this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So many times throughout the Gospel of John, John refers to himself in the third person as the disciple whom Jesus loved, as the disciple who's writing this portion of Scripture. This is the, the disciple who is bearing witness. 
the disciple who beat Peter to the tomb. It was just a, kind of a standard manner of speaking of oneself without being boastful. And so he's saying here, I have written this. I, John, have written this testimony, this account of the life, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice that I didn't say birth because it's not in John's gospel. Rather than what we find in Matthew and Luke, which make a pretty big deal of Jesus' arrival, and it was a big deal, don't get me wrong, but neither Mark nor John say anything about it. John instead has a very long and familiar theological treatise about the identity of Christ, that he is the Word. He was in the beginning the Word, and he was with God, and he was God, and the Word has now entered into our world, bearing flesh. So not the manner of his entry, but the entry was the point that John made. And so he finishes by saying that here I am, one of the disciples, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, the one whom Jesus loved, is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Verse 25, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And that parallels with what we read in verse 20. I'm sorry, chapter 20 and verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in, this, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of John is the most theological of all of the Gospels. And when I say that, I don't mean that the other Gospels don't have theology in them. They certainly do. But many commentators, okay, all the commentators have noted that John doesn't follow the events, and we can compare this with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, chronologically, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to do, and as Luke states that he intends to do, so that we'll have a good, reliable history of the birth, life, ministry, teaching, death, and resurrection of Christ. John has a different purpose, and so he selects events in the life of Christ that will suit his purpose, and we find at the end what his purpose has been. And all along, his purpose has been to select those parts about Jesus' identity and the life that he lived before us and the teaching that he taught, and especially his crucifixion for the sins of the whole world and his resurrection so that you might believe, so that I might believe, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life. So June the 30th, 1991, I had just come back from a government-paid vacation in the desert of Saudi Arabia, also known as the Gulf War, the first Gulf War. And it was in that 
experience that I had having grown up in church that I did not know Jesus. That if I died over there, I had no hope anywhere. So I started talking to our battalion chaplain, Steve Walsh is his name. And he was, <laughs> he was, and I presume he still is, in God's providence, a double predestinarian Calvinist. And what that means is you're both destined for hell and you're, or, or, or you're destined for heaven and you can't do a thing about either. So we had some pretty scary conversations. We got back, we survived. We got back and I was having dinner with him at his home. He, he came home to an empty house. His wife left him while he was over there. And so I got to do a little ministry, not being yet a Christian, but through friendship of one who had experienced something similar to that. So we were out on his back deck drinking a beer and smoking a cigar. If you're a Presbyterian, you can do that. And he says to me, I, I, you know, I'm just sharing with him this angst that I had. I'm tr I want to believe. I'm trying to believe, but I can't believe. I don't know what to do. And being the double predestinarian Calvinist that he was, Steve said, well, you may just be destined for hell. And I blurted out, but I don't want to go to hell. He said, then relax. If you're one of God's, he'll draw you to himself. If you're not, not all the worrying in the world will do you a bit of good. That wasn't as helpful as he might have meant it to be. So I did what any rational person would do. I went for a second opinion. And I made an appointment with the senior pastor of the Southern Baptist Church that I had been attending, oh, off and on for about three years. When, I went to, when, I, when it suited me, I went to church. When it didn't, I didn't go to church. And, you know, it was okay. I, you know, I kind of liked it, but I often had better things to do, so I thought. So I told him my story, told him this story about the deployment in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and at the end, he said something very similar to what Steve said, except with a Southern Baptist kind of nuance. He said, Mark, you've been playing games with God. You've been sitting on the fence, not choosing for a long time, coming to church when it suits you, not when it doesn't suit you. But very soon, you'll need to make a decision. You'll need to choose. And when that time comes, don't let anything stop you. Don't let embarrassment stop you. Don't let fear stop you. Don't, don't let pressure from others stop you. You just come to Jesus. 
So we got back from uh, Desert Storm in uh, March, and so this conversation was probably happening at the end of April, mid-April mid to the end of April, 31 years ago, almost exactly. And on June the 30th, 1991, so a couple of months later, I was in one of their worship services. It was a standard Southern Baptist worship service with a standard invitation at the end. Um, and I knew that that was my moment. Uh, there was something happening on the spiritual realm inside of me, sort of, that I knew that as Brian Lee, the senior pastor whom I was in conversation with, was inviting anybody, Jesus was inviting me. And my young son was with me. He was right beside me. I asked one of, the, one of my friends from our Sunday school, a young adult Sunday school class, or not so young adult Sunday school class for singles, and I asked her if she would watch after Chris said, I, I, I got to go. She said, sure. So I stepped out, and I walked up to the pastor, whom I had been in conversation with, and I said, it's time. <laughs> Shelley will attest to this, that Brian Lee, you would never pick him out in a crowd as a senior pastor of any church, because he's kind of a wallflower kind of guy. He's he, he's, he's very reserved, quite introverted. He's not a guy out there rallying the troops, follow me, or anything like that. But on that morning, it was like the Holy Spirit was speaking through him. What are you here to do? Maybe a little fire in his eyes. This is my memory of it. He doesn't remember this, but... I said, it's time. I, I'm, I'm tired of fighting. I just, he said, what are you here to do? Are you here to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? I said, yes, I am. <laughs> and he doesn't hug either. I'm a hugger. He's not a hugger. But a big smile broke out on his face, and he gave me a big hug. And he said, that's just great. And he pointed over here, and he said to Carl Gentry, one of the funniest men I ever met in my entire life, and the funny thing about that is he's a geriatric orthodontist. So I guess he's telling all his jokes to the older folks that he's, you know, fixing with dental work. Truly funny guy. And he says, Carl Gentry, would you take this man, counsel him, and pray with him, and then bring him back? Uh, Carl said, great. And he, Carl got up, and he's on the mission. He takes me back to the library. We sit down, and Carl says, so... You want to give your life to Jesus? And I said, yes, sir, I do. And he said, great, that's just great. Let's pray. <laughs> that, that was my counseling. That was it. So, so, so by the time I got back out to the auditorium, the people were, were filing out. Uh, you've noticed this with me mostly in, in the beginning of our relationship, that I used to stand out by the door and people would file by and greet them. And that's still a good thing to do, I think. And he was doing that while I was at the end of the line. And when he, when he got to me, he said, Mark, I'm going to tell you something I never want you to forget. Obviously, I haven't because I'm going to tell you. He said, there will be people who will try to tell you that the Christian life is about following their rules, their regulations, their whatevers. 
He said, don't believe them for a minute. He said, this is what the Christian life is, following Jesus. That's it. You follow Jesus. So today is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not on that cross anymore. He came down off that cross, and when he did, he was dead. Doornail dead. There was no life in him. He didn't appear to die. He was dead. And they carried him to a rich man's tomb, and they buried him in the way of burial in that day. And they put a stone in front of that tomb, and they sealed it. And on top of that, they put Roman guards in front of it so that no one could, as was rumored to be happening, his disciples couldn't come and steal him away. And on the third day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, April 3rd, April 5th, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, rose Jesus from the dead. Historically, factually, personally, bodily. And he now resides at the Father's right hand forevermore, interceding on behalf of the saints, and he will come again in the clouds, in glory for us. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we once again feel the urgency of choice to choose to follow Jesus. Lord, there's a lot involved in following Jesus. It's not some sort of joyride on a Friday night. It's hard. It's deadly. It's joyful. It's the call. I pray, Lord, that not a single person will leave this place without knowing whether he or she is a follower of Jesus. And, and if the answer is not, that they will come and talk to me or talk to Pastor Yuri, and we can begin a conversation about their journey from this point forward and how they can walk with Jesus. We thank you for the hope that is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in no other. I pray that each of us would no longer fear death as those disciples were literally hiding from the Jews. That it will no longer enslave us as our passage last week alluded to. A lifetime of fear that death will come. Death will come unless Jesus does first. But we have no reason to fear. Thank you. Thank you for that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. As we leave this place, I want us to hear the words of the little, little half-brother of Jesus, Jude, was his name. This is my favorite benediction of all time in all the Bible. 
It begins on verse 17. It's just one little chapter, so no chapter headings, just verse 17 and following. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, that's that sude, but you, in contrast to what I've just said, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. See you next time. He is risen. He is. Risen he is. See you next time.